friends, welcome to SciFight Science Comedy Debate. Ah, so good to be back at the Howler. I've been on journeys to New South Wales, and I'm so happy to be here and not in New South Wales. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, if you've not been to a SciFight before. What we're doing this evening uh, is bringing together the, some of the sharpest minds from science and comedy and making them debate critical issues in a very silly way. Uh, my name is Alanta and I'm your host and adjudicator for this evening. And tonight we debate whether natural selection is over. Uh, biotechnology and genetic research are barreling ahead at 100 miles an hour. It may soon be possible to produce babies from genetic material from one person or six people or more. In the future, the question, who's your daddy, <laughs> is going to need a whiteboard and half an hour to answer. Scientists speak of a future where babies may be brought to term in artificial wombs, <clears throat> where the capacity to screen embryos for genetic abnormalities, disease, or even physical traits. As we, are we as a species at the end of evolution? Are we now turning to Mother Nature and saying, thanks for the ride, lady, we've got it from here? Could future humans be a curated, disease-free race of superhumans? Will mankind be manufactured? Will baby building be a commodity? Or are these just the hubristic hallucinations of a bunch of self-assured monkeys in lab coats? Are the powers of evolution and natural selection far more complex and powerful than we understand? <clears throat> is, is it as Goldblum says in my favourite documentary, Jurassic Park? that life finds a way. Here to explain why humans are the new god on the affirmative, it is Julian Copeland. <laughs> Sashi Pereira. And Elise Phillips. And on the negative, we have other people. We have Elias Arvel, Arjun Shahal, and Martin Dunlop. Oh, we've got a live audience tonight. I like it. This is excellent. Uh, look, we might start with some questions uh, to each of our debaters to see how they're going. Might kick off with you, Julian, if you want to grab the microphone. Um, welcome to Sci-Fi. Yeah, thank you. It's great to have you here. Now, you're a bit of a, a fan of, of things that we can do with genes. If you yep. could uh, make any animal from scratch, what would you make? I, I wouldn't go from scratch. There are... Efforts in the States to bring back the woolly mammoth. I think that's really exciting. I think they could improve if you made them really little. Okay. Yeah. So just like city-appropriate teacup yeah. woolly mammoths. <laughs> there is such a market for that. I'm entirely on board for that. How many would you have, personally? Uh, maybe, I'd say about three, depending okay. on the size. I'm thinking like a large dog. Uh, I, I could go three, yeah. Okay. And would you get rid of your existing cats or would you, would you uh, keep them all together? I, I, I enjoy watching them play. Okay. <laughs> I totally want to see what happens between a woolly mammoth and a cat when they start playing. Uh, Sashi, who am I throw to you? 
Hello. Hello. Thank you for coming and, and being part of this nonsense. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I feel so unqualified to be here. <laughs> um, now, you're in the throes of preparing for a huge tour. You're going, you're going to Europe. You're going everywhere. Yeah, it's very exciting. That's Certainly cool. scary. Yes. How do you prepare for, for something like that? I perform to a wall a uh -huh. lot. <laughs> yeah. Does that prepare really... you for audiences? Not very well. No. <laughs> I'm still working up on the warm-up proceedings. Do you have exactly the same show for your Australian audiences and your overseas audiences? Yeah, the prepared bits of it. There's a lot of crowd work, um, so that always goes wherever it goes. But yeah. for the most part, it's the same show, so it's very exciting. Oh, glorious. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Very exciting. Elise. Hello. Welcome. Your Gonna hair. Lean in a little bit. Sorry. It's your hair is getting a black light right now, and it is the most sublime beacon of joy. Is it doing? The, the, the bottle of dye said that it does stuff under blacklight. Is it actually? Yeah. yeah. Yes. I've yet to be, I haven't been able to test it yet because I'm not <laughs> cool enough to be in rooms with a blacklight normally well, or being investigated for crimes. You're but, testing yeah. it with an audience of 100 people too. Uh. Awesome. Great. <laughs> um, what was I going to ask? Oh, yeah. That's right. Uh, hard quiz. Yes. You write for hard quiz. I do write for hard quiz. Super cool. What's the weirdest thing that you've had to um, research for hard quiz? Um, I had to research oysters. Yeah. Which was a lot because the contestant was a marine biologist, and I'm not a marine biologist, so I had to learn a lot of science yeah. very quickly. Um, but also, I did this one aired last night. I, uh, a contestant came on with Bunnings Warehouse as their topic, <laughs> um, which was really a tricky one because, as a bisexual, I really do feel a spiritual connection to that place. <laughs> and narrowing it down to 15 questions, hard ask, really difficult. What kind of questions can you quiz someone about bunnings? <laughs> Did you know? <laughs> um, if you go to the University of Melbourne Library, uh, they have <laughs> a book about the history of the Bunnings brothers That's because cool. it was a timber company in WA uh, before it was the warehouse as we know and love her. Um, the contestant wasn't very good, so none of my questions about the Bunnings brothers made it to air. But that's, that's the game. That's, <laughs> that's how she goes. <laughs> I feel like I have learned so much in this conversation. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm going to throw over to the negative team. We might kick off with Elias. How are you going? I'm good. Thank you, Alanta. Welcome to Sci-Fi. First time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, now, you're, you're a science person. If you could conduct, if you had the ethics approvals <laughs> slash budget to, to do any science experiments you wanted, what, what would you do? Let's see. I, if I could get the funding for just anything on my fellow trans and non-binary uh, population, uh -huh. then that would be great <laughs> because we are a vastly under-researched cohort. Okay. So you, you would research trans and non-binary? Yeah, that would be great. I have no idea what, but just point <laughs> me in a direction. Maybe put some microscopes in the room, grow some brain cells. I don't know. But combine all that. That's my dream. I love that. Just please give us money and let us free and do whatever we want in the room. That sounds yes. excellent. Okay. Well, I'll throw over to, to you, AJ. Welcome back to Sci-Fi. Hello, Alanta. Uh, now, I, you are famously good at bringing everything together at the last minute. Uh, how did you prepare? <laughs> did you prepare for tonight's well, debate? Well, let me tell you a story. Um, <laughs> it took me back to my, uh, my lab days. I have a PhD, for those of you who don't know, because if I don't tell you, who will? <laughs> um, 
So it was a lot of complaining about how I'm actually going to start now and then it was 11 o'clock and I was ripping through energy drinks and Instagram spirals and <laughs> Wikipedia. There's a lot of stuff on there. So much. If you haven't uh, checked it out, it was good pl- Famously. Good place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That was about it. Yeah. Energy drinks spiralling and Wikipedia, that was... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw, well, they'll hear the biography. The shame spiral <laughs> has been going for a long time. It's long, quite delightful when you're putting the notes together and you get a bio at two in the morning and it's just self-loathing, just the whole, <laughs> whole way down. Just call me Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing over to you, Martin. Welcome back to Sci-Fi. Oh, thank, thank you for having me again. It's very kind. Uh, how are you feeling about tonight's debate? Uh, a little a little amazed. Um, I'm currently inundated with children. Okay. Uh, we have t- two and it turns out that's I'm like a like a house on the Queensland shoreline and my children are a storm relentlessly buffeting <laughs> my poorly constructed frame. That's uh, that's how things are. So it should be should be great. Okay. We might just give you some quiet time to uh... <laughs> Prepare for the rest of the debate. Uh, now, before we kick off, we have some rules for sci-fi um, because we always have more fun with rules, as I always say. Uh, tonight's debate is governed by the laws of nature and also the state of Victoria. A reminder to both teams not to defame or ad hominem your opponents. We're here for a good time, not a long time. Each debater has eight minutes. If people go for longer, I will start reading from Kerry-Ann Kennelly's autobiography. <laughs> Imaginatively named people I met and places I've been. <laughs> and none of you really deserve that. Uh, come to the end of the debate, you, our trusty audience, will be called upon to decide who the winning team is by shouting because science has proved the loudest person in any room is always the most correct. <laughs> to introduce our very first debater for tonight, Julian Coplin is a lecturer in bioethics at Monash University. Uh, he would have a co- coherent research agenda, for example, AI ethics, chimeras or grey markets in tissue and organ donation but he's incapable, uh, he's capable of getting distracted by just about everything. Somebody once told him he gave the funniest talk at a paediatric mortality conference. <laughs> and he is still trying to work out if that is a good thing. Please welcome to the stage, Julian Coplin. All right. Oh, I go up, that's better, even better, great. All right. Um, hi. It's an absolute privilege to be here at Sci-Fi, which, I mean, my understanding is it's an event series dedicated to fighting science. Um, I, I think the negative team's going to do more of that than we are, because we've got a really easy task. We're just arguing the natural selection is over, which I think it really obviously is. For example, this is what happens when you breed sheep for wool, and then you forget to shear them for a year. Um, and this is what happens when people get bored enough they start trying to see what they can achieve by breeding pigeons. And, yeah, just for those of you listening to the podcast without the visual, you can Google pigeon breeding. I've held up a photo of a pigeon with, like, a really, really big, just neck-bulging growth thing, and it's much worse than you can imagine. Um, so, look, animal, animals, natural selection, done, we've taken over. That's below argument as far as I'm concerned. The thing that I am going to spend some time discussing is humans. I'm going to do this in part because I think humans naturally spend a lot more time thinking about ourselves and other animals. And when we meet a human, we're like, wow, you're, you're a human that's really relatable. This is, this is great. 
So what about humans? Are we the product of natural selection? Obviously, historically, yes, but I'm going to say this is about to change. But before I do that, I want to ask you a question. It's a quite genuinely serious question, which is, what do you want for your children, your real children, your hypothetical children? And maybe you don't want kids. That's fair enough. Some people don't. You miss out on some really valuable things. Like I know, you know, when, when I had uh, babies in the house, I, I got to experience losing a, a, a nappy and you'll, you'll pass through your life without ever being aware that a poo is even the kind of thing that you can lose. Um, but, but, you know, most of us, most of us statistically, we have kids, we want kids, we will have kids. So what, what do you want for them? Now, some people care about the child sex and these preferences have been around for a really long time, which we know we have documented medical advice from ancient Greece where doctors would tell couples if they're trying to conceive a girl, they should tie up the man's right testicle with string, because this would cause the sperm to spurt out to the left. And as we all know, the left-hand side of the womb is where the girls grow. Um, if, if, if you, and then this is true, you know, and if you want to conceive a boy, you, you tie up the left testicle, which is sort of obvious at this stage, I'd say. Um, but, but, you know, many, many of us here tonight, I think, aren't going to be that fussed about the children's genitalia. We're probably going to say, you know, the, the, the rote thing, all I care about is that it's happy and healthy. But note that when you say that, you still have a preference. You want reasonably enough for your child to have a good life. So the question then becomes, what can we do to give our children a good life? And we can follow the health advice. We can avoid eating soft cheeses during pregnancy. We can help them with their homework. If we live in Turak, we can maybe buy them a house or three. Uh, we, <laughs> It is becoming possible to do much more than this. It's becoming possible to choose or design a child with improved odds of living the kind of life that we want for them. One option that's been around for a while is to use in vitro fertilization. So create embryos in the lab, then test the embryo's genome uh, before deciding which to implant, carry, and give birth to. And this has been done since the late 80s to avoid transmitting certain genetic conditions like cystic fibrosis. Or you can use new technologies like CRISPR-Cas9, which is a gene editing technology that gives you much more fine-grained control over the genome of the embryo and the resulting child. And this isn't legal yet, but it's already happened in China in 2018. And by all accounts, the two babies born are, to most people's surprise, in good health. And most researchers in my field, bioethics, think that legalization of gene editing is just a matter of time. So then... What can we do with these technologies to give our kids a chance of a good life? Well, until recently, it wasn't very much. We didn't understand genomics well enough to make good use of them. We've used embryo selection to avoid single gene disorders, but very few traits are caused by single genes. Things like cancers, heart disease, IQ, caused by the interplay of hundreds of thousands of different genes and their interactions with the environment. It's really hard to pin down genetic contributions to these traits. But in the last few years, we've seen a revolution in genomics. We've seen scientists undertaking what's known as genome-wide association studies, which involve testing the genomes of hundreds of thousands of people and tallying up their genes with various traits and medical conditions and things like height, depression, performance nights, QQ tests, educational achievement. And we found some correlations. We, we have some of this information now. It's become possible to meaningfully alter the odds that our children will have certain characteristics. And, you know, on one level, it sounds like a good idea. If more people are 
healthy, happy, in and of itself, that, that seems quite nice. The big worry people have is that selecting children or reducing their genes does sound a lot like eugenics, and eugenics doesn't have a great reputation currently. <laughs> so in the first half of the 20th century, eugenicists restricted immigration of races that were thought to have undesirable genes. They forcibly sterilized what was called feeble-minded, which is a category that wasn't a category, just sort of you didn't like someone that feeble-minded and you sort of get away with that. And it's really ahead of the Nazi program of racial hygiene, which makes it really awkward to call for more of this kind of thing, particularly if, like me, you're German. But <laughs> I don't know. I think the eugenics worry isn't quite as decisive as people think. There are differences be between the kind of genetic practices we're talking about now and the eugenics of the past. So to begin with, the old eugenics, very unscientific. Eugenicists believe that there was a single gene disorder for everything, including philosophilia, which is a innate and irresistible love for the sea that causes young men to join the Navy. And, <laughs> you know, obviously that's absurd, right? You know, today we know that philosophilia is actually caused by the interplay of at least three different genes. Um, <laughs> and, and also doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> the, the old eugenics was very clearly racist, and as we all know, these days we've solved racism, so that's done as well. Um, but the really important difference is that the old eugenics was imposed by the state on people without their consent and in ways that violated their rights. The new so-called liberal eugenics would give people new reproductive options, not take them away. And many ethicists think this makes a moral difference. And speaking for myself, I genuinely don't know what I think. I don't know why I draw the moral lines around here. Avoiding disease seems great. Trying to create taller children will just mean that there are more people like me who can never find trousers to <laughs> fit them. Um, but in the end, for this debate, at least, it's probably the one time in my career I'm going to say the ethics is beside the point. Like, I'm an ethicist, but it doesn't matter here. Because we're not talking about what should be. We're talking about what is the case. And people don't always follow ethics. They don't always follow the moral code. We read about workers burning to death in factories that manufacture smartphones. And then we tweet on our smartphones about how outrageous it is. And, and we're even bigger hypocrites when our children are involved. So when my daughter was in preschool, she very seriously told me that she wanted to become a scientist so that she could bring back the dinosaurs. And she's very strong-willed. I genuinely worry that one day she'll succeed. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I hope she doesn't cause a dinosaur apocalypse, but if she does, and she's fleeing the law, I'm, I'm, I'm going to harbor the shit out of that particular fugitive. Which <laughs> brings me back to the question I asked you earlier. What do you want for your children? If we can stack the genetic odds in favor of our children having a long, healthy, happy life, I think many of us will do so. And if you're still not convinced that natural selection is over, I'd just like to, you know, fall back to reminding you that thanks to humans, some pigeons look like this. <laughs>
Archimedes, who most famous, uh, is most famous for his Bath-inspired laws of fluid dynamics and public nudity, actually devised a whole bunch of weapons of war. These included Archimedes' claw, which would lift enemies' ships out of the water and then just drop them again, which is technology you might recognise from the arcade toy machines. It's a feature. It's not a flaw. It's part of the design. Uh, he also invented something called the steam cannon, which uh, was fairly successful, except that uh, when it was ready, it would make a loud whistling noise, and the enemy knew that it was time to escape. Uh, the students successfully demonstrated this principle with a series of concave mirrors angled correctly and proved that the Greeks, Greeks very well could have set alight Roman warships as long as they stood still for 11 minutes. <laughs> the enemy thwarted the entire thing by just attacking when it was cloudy. <laughs> the student mainly used his contraption to set alight uh, his English homework now, our next speaker has never incinerated their homework. Elias Arvel is a neuroscience graduate researcher at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. They're also a nerd, a queer advocate, and a human in training. Make some noise for Elias! Thank you. As Julian completely failed to lay out, much like a debate team, natural selection comes to you in three parts. Firstly, a population needs to have a natural variation in traits. Secondly, individuals with that within that population with favorable traits are more likely to survive to reproduction age, while those are with unfavorable traits are not, which, thirdly, allows those with favorable traits to reproduce and increase the frequency of those traits in the population. Assuming, of course, those traits are genetically encoded. One delightful example has emerged in the last hundred years. Now, cast your minds to the highlands of Papua New Guinea, where an isolated group of people called the Foray live, and they did so undisturbed by outsiders until about the 1900s. Unfortunately, in the 1950s, an epidemic of a neurodegenerative disease called Kuru swept through the South Foray population. Now, Kuru is caused by proteins, or, um, sorry, it's caused by prions, or infectious proteins. A particular protein in your body can become misfolded or tangled up, and if it comes into contact with another of these proteins, it can convert that protein into a tangled mess as well. This keeps happening until your brain is filled with these mangled proteins. Your brain cells can't handle it, and they start to die, leaving your brain holier than my memory of the great Melbourne lockdowns of the early 2020s. <laughs> it took a little while, but anthropologists eventually figured out the reason that this disease was spreading so rapidly through the population, and it was due to the Foray tribe's practice of mortuary cannibalism, where they cooked and consumed the bodies of deceased tribe members. Unfortunately, this meant that the women and children who partook were eating the infected brains of those who had succumbed to Kuru. And then those people would die and, uh, and be eaten and transmit the prions and in this great chain of reverse zombification. 
Now, there exist different variants of the gene that encodes the problematic prion protein, uh, and one variant confers, confers resistance to the disease. This genetic variant is now more common in the 4A population than in neighboring populations. Through natural selection, the 4A evolved to be resistant to Kuru. There we go, just like spotting a single black swan to disprove the stance that all swans are white, one example of cannibalism later, and I've shown you natural selection, is still going strong. <laughs> but what kind of world would it take for natural selection to be over? Well, we'd have to break at least one of the parts in the grand process of natural selection, now wouldn't we? Let's take a look at that first part I mentioned. For natural selection to be over, we'd have to be, uh, we would have to have no genetic variation in the, home, uh, in the human population. So imagine for a moment, if you will, that I snap my fingers and every human on Earth becomes a clone. Genetically identical, every chromosome from the very first nucleotide all the way down to the very tip of your rapidly unraveling telomeres. And for the purpose of reproduction in this example, let's just pretend we're all hermaphrodites, just go with it. <laughs> there we go, natural selection over, right? Or is it? Well, it turns out that natural selection is not the only driving force of evolution. Genetic mutations can randomly arise through a gamut of different mechanisms. These mutations may arise due to environmental exposures. We could, I don't know, go outside in the sunshine and be hit with ultraviolet radiation by the burning orb of death in the sky. Or they could arise from pathogens, spend two seconds in a putrid petri dish known as a primary school, and you've picked up a newfangled virus, which may just insert some of its genetic material into your genome. The replication of our own DNA when we're growing more cells or producing gametes, so sperm or eggs, is by no means a perfect Control-C, Control-P situation. For every DNA base pair replicated, there is about a 1 in 10 billion chance that there will be an error, that it will mutate. Okay, that doesn't sound like a lot, but the human genome is made up of about three billion DNA base pairs, and before a cell divides, it has to create an entirely new copy of this genome. So it would only take one cell in your body, dividing about three or four times over, to produce a cell with a genetic mutation. As, as adults, we have about 30 trillion cells in our bodies, many of which are dividing and rapidly turning over in order to replace those cells that are becoming as dilapidated as a Brunswick share house occupied by like-minded 20-somethings. <laughs> Once we have a few mutations in the population, the other forces of evolution become possible. One force is called gene flow, or as it is less pretentiously known, Migration, which is essentially where some people from over here who are slightly genetic dif genetically different to some people over there move from over here to over there and they exchange genetic information and voila, more genetic diversity. There's also the force of genetic drift, which is akin to the situation that we are all intimately familiar with, where you have 10 butterflies, five red and five green, then a time traveler appears and steps on four of the red ones. And now, purely by random chance and human hubris, you have a higher proportion of green butterflies in the population. Basically, it's random events that cause change in the frequency of a genetic trait. So, if we left this cloning sim simulation long enough, give it a few millennia, maybe a couple hundred, and we wouldn't be so genetically identical anymore. And natural selection would stir from its slumber once again. 
This brings us to our second part. To break this part of natural selection, let's say favorable traits are no longer conferring a survival advantage. To make this happen, we would effectively have to completely eliminate all selection pressures. Just imagine, post-revolution Earth, we've brought about the fall of capitalism by eating the rich. Sorry, Taylor Swift, as of October last year, you're on the menu of billionaires. Let's just hope she doesn't have Kuru. We'll also have solved the climate crisis, all diseases are but a distant memory, and we live in a society of utterly equal opportunity and abundance. We'd probably also have to somehow nullify the incomprehensible nature of human attraction and courting, but this probably still wouldn't eliminate selection pressures, because amongst all this, some group somewhere would absolutely come up with some other bizarre cultural practice that would bring natural selection screaming back. Let's move on to our final part. To break this part, survival to reproduction age would need to not equate to passing on the gene that allowed you to survive. Exhibit A, me. Wait. Although I survived this long, I find the idea of pregnancy and childbirth to be utterly horrifying. I also can't compute the idea of bringing a child into this hellscape of aforementioned climate crisis and late-stage capitalism. So we've somehow created this weird, twisted form of a cultural selection pressure of if you're a person for whom morality wins out over the biological urge to create mini-me's, your genetic material is less likely to survive. I wonder if a sense of morality is genetically inheritable or has a greater environmental component. No wonder society is headed the way it is. <laughs> Fortunately for those who do want to create little mini-me's though, we're not quite at the stage of population-wide sterility, although 10% of couples do struggle with infertility. In fact, there are fears slash hopes that infertility is on the rise, which brings us into a curious situation in which the measures we can take to overcome some of the traits that cause infertility will alleviate the selection pressure that would have otherwise phased out those traits that got us into this infertility situation to start with, which potentially increases that rate of infertility. Who knows? Perhaps we'll IVF ourselves into oblivion and finally free the earth of our plague. But we're not there yet. Only about 5% of 2021 newborns were conceived as the result of assisted reproductive technologies. But even these children will still experience selection pressures in their lifetimes. So even if modern medicine is evolving faster than crew resistance in the 4A tribe, the force of natural selection still persists. Unless you control every single aspect of genetic inheritance and selection pressures, natural selection would find a way. In fact, I think this necessity of control perhaps says more about the person who set the topic of the debate than anything else, Solanta. <laughs> anyway, long live natural selection. Or at least, let it live to reproductive age. Thank you. Elia Samuel. Experimenting with the evolutionary force of insulting the person in charge of tonight's debate. There we go. All right, in space news this week, the EU is about to publish the first European space law, which finally means we have a mandate to send the lawyers to space. 
space presently is a fairly unregulated place. There's nothing currently legally stopping you from shooting off to Jupiter, setting up a fascist dictatorship and creating your own Jupiter tax haven. To be fair, you can probably also achieve this by just heading north of Adelaide and still occasionally visit a bakery, so... The main piece of legislation governing space presently is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which I don't want to be excessively critical of, but I did notice is only signed by humans. The treaty states outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, shall be free for exploration and use by all states without discrimination of any kind on a basis of equality. It's almost like it was written in the full historical knowledge that the first thing humans do when out for a spot of colonising is discriminate. (laughs) Space, of course, is getting busier by the day. There's now over 9,000 satellites orbiting the Earth. There are two space stations and now space tourists. If you're thinking of jettisoning yourself through at the atmosphere into the depths of the cosmos to finally get yourself a bit of peace and quiet, it's already too late. You'll find yourself accosted by a space Kentucky tour doing their nine, day, nine planets in nine days special. There's even a Space Games Federation, I am not making that up, uh, looking at taking sport to space. The Victorian government is relieved. This means They're hoping it means they can finally find an interstellar species whom they can palm off the next Commonwealth Games to. Our next speaker is the sort of lawyer that we don't need to send to space. Sashi Pereira is a comedian and a writer in her former life as a refugee lawyer starting in Perth. It took her to Manila, Ankara, Dar es Salaam, Cairo and Bangkok for over a decade. She came to Melbourne to do her master's in law, started doing comedy. Now she's found uh, gigging all around the town and thoroughly enjoys doing too many things at the same time. Would you make some noise for Sashi Pereira? Hello everyone. Now, despite Elias's commendable attempt to mislead you with visual powerful images of cannibalism, butterflies, time travellers and the black swan, I think we can all agree that everything Julian said clearly indicates that selection has not been natural for quite some time. Look at Elias's hair. But if you need more convincing, strap in. Charles Darwin (laughs) discussed the concept of natural selection in his book on the origin of species in 1859. He and Alfred Wallace jointly came up with this concept, a timely reminder that you must always publish your book before your friend. (laughs) Now, when they proposed this concept, what else was going on? We had fire, thanks to Prometheus, but electricity, not really a thing. Neither was penicillin, concrete, or the internet, with its staggeringly helpful WebMD that helps us all to diagnose cancer on such a regular and thorough basis. (laughs) Thanks to advances 
in medicine, technology, genetics, agriculture, we artificially extend our lives well beyond anything that's natural. Our closest relatives are chimpanzees and bonobos. Their average life expectancy is 40. Most of us live well beyond this, much to the chagrin of people waiting to inherit a Brunswick share house. We should die much earlier, but we don't, and we should. (laughs) Look over to the States. Donald Trump is an 80-year-old man fighting to lead the country against another 80-year-old man. If selection was natural, let's be honest, both of them would be dead. (laughs) Let's cut to the chase. It's not no longer the smartest, the quickest, or the strongest of us that survive, not those best attuned to procreating that procreate. Tune into a re- any reality TV show and bask in the glory of thwarting nature. <laughs> a short period of time with any of the participants will convince you that most left in actual nature would definitely die. or indeed just without any supervision. (laughs) Now, don't cancel me. I'm not saying they deserve to die. I'm saying if nature took its course, they would die. (laughs) We got so bored waiting for nature to take its course, we invented our own ways to die. Weapons, warfare, inventing viruses in labs. We took on nature itself by changing the climate, dealing with record wet summers and hot winters while arguing whether it's actually happening. We have intervened artificially for a long, long time. Go outside and throw a rock in any direction. You will hit a poodle mixed with another type of dog. Poor poodles, man. They just want to fuck another poodle and we won't let them. We will not let them. We are the top species on the planet. We are at the apex. We can do anything. We can create anything. And we have proved it by creating admin. Most of us sit in front of computers for eight hours a day, looking outside at birds flying free, thinking, you idiots. Are you accruing annual leave right now? We created admin, an echelon of paperwork no species is naturally evolved to deal with. Our poor brains should be chilling in caves after hunting and gathering, not remembering passwords that include one symbol and one capital letter and one number and proving to a machine that we are not a machine. What are we doing? We are in control, but we have made all the wrong choices. We are in control of our genetic destiny. And what does it look like? Whatever we want it to. And that's why it's so depressing that it looks like this. (laughs) Currently, (laughs) it's looking at a little rectangle when we wake up, sitting in front of a bigger one for eight hours, then an even bigger one in the evening, 
probably watching reality TV. Or even better, Gogglebox, which is watching people watching reality TV. <laughs> then back to the little rectangle before we go to bed, ruining our eyesight artificially to such a level that five of your six panel members wear glasses. <laughs> Our most dexterous finger has changed from our index finger to our thumb. We are on our phones all the time, not to learn the secrets of the universe, but mostly to look at cat videos. There are servers floating in international seawaters, mostly to hold videos of cats. They should be honest and rename the cloud mostly cats. Do you know how many photos cats have of us? None. <laughs> Our advances have brought us to now, a place where we argue whether the earth is flat, whether the moon landing was real, or whether God buried those dinosaur bones just to test our faith. And some of us... <laughs> I was going to go into creationism, but I don't have time. And some of us check into adult baby hotels so we can just be a baby again. Nature didn't do this. We did. The sheer scale of our collective stupidity should be enough evidence that nature should have eradicated us a long time ago. <laughs> Julian didn't know that he had to walk up to the podium. <laughs> He's the smartest man on our team. Did you say don't attack the other team or your own team? Sorry. <laughs> it's my first time. I locked myself out of this very tablet multiple times just waiting to get here. Anyway, where was I? Nature didn't do this. We did it. Like us, the sheer scale of our collective stupidity should be enough to decide in the affirmative. Natural selection is over. <laughs> Thank you very much, Evan Sashi. Sashi Pereira. We are smashing it. Everyone's doing an excellent job. Good debating, good audienting. We're all, all doing fantastic. And as, as such, we will have an intermission. Uh, so we'll come back here at a quarter past eight. We'll see you then. Welcome back. Do we all have a lovely intermission? Sure, why not? We're going to keep the ball rolling. I'm going to introduce to you the second speaker for the negative. Arjun is a curmudgeonly asshole. <laughs> Apparently when writing about himself at two in the morning. Uh, who works in clinical trials at the Peter Mac Cancer Centre. He received his PhD in cancer genetics from the University of Melbourne in 2022 and his driver's licence from VicRoads in January 2024. <laughs> <laughs> With both bodies of work being cited numerous times as exemplary examples of peer pressure. Neither of these qualifications allows him to practice medicine, but he does so anyway. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of friends, family and the Department of Health. 
Uh, his days mostly consist of being bullied by nurses both at home and at work. <laughs> and in his spare time, he enjoys rotting on the couch and debunking the myth of the family-sized pizza. Make some noise <laughs> for Arjun Chahal! Hello. How are we? <laughs> Don't be too excited. Ah, okay. Timer. Inhaler. Good. Um, I don't do rebuttals, so let me just say that prop comedy is the lowest form of comedy. <sighs> My time starts now. Gentle people of the inner north, I stand here, an educated man of moderate means and paltry superannuation, and humbly beseech you to throw down the veils of ignorance these charlatans have draped upon your blessed crowns. Natural selection is not over. Do not let the affirmative team put the wool over your eyes. Their attempts have all the grace of a parent who used to refer to the soft spot on a baby's head as the instant death button, now faced with the horror of supporting their progeny's skull. It's ironic that the fontanelle allows the brain to grow and develop postpartum, as I would assume the affirmative teams all close too early. That is, I would assume, so except these creatures were not born, but rather spawned from the MCG toilets during a Collingwood game. <laughs> Dr. Julian Coplin is an expert in bioethics, which deals with the ethics of biomedicine and biomedical research. A man who would be incredibly well-placed in a world of genetic engineering and artificial selection, wouldn't you say, Julian? <laughs> Can you say insider trading? <laughs> or in this case, inside of her trading? of genetic material, because that's a way that babies are made. Julian is first author in a paper titled How Should We Treat Human Pig Chimeras, Non-Chimeric Pigs and Other Beings of Uncertain Moral Status. Congratulations on concocting a title for your research project that could pass as a Jezebel article about Tinder. But to answer your paper's question, Julian, it is respectfully. That is how they should be treated. Sashi Pereira, the flavour bomb in this white bread sandwich of mediocrity. How are you, Sashi? Legitimately a big fan of yours. Um, Sashi has Sri Lankan heritage and is living proof of the pillage of South Asia by colonialism. The white people took all the good stuff and only left you salt for your bland-ass arguments tonight. So what drives Sashi Pereira to take up arms against us? Is it a struggle for the truth? Or does she desire to genetically engineer her own body so she can morph into a hawk and seduce Tobias, an underage boy tragically stuck in avian form in the fictional Animorphs literary universe? Ciro's kindness, Sashi, never forget. This flagrant disregard of the law, both fictional and of the Romeo and Juliet variety, is the reason why your husband won't list you as his emergency contact. And last, but definitely not least, at least... Phillips. Everyone's really nice, actually. I feel like kind of a huge asshole to this. Elise presents as the creative darling of Northern Nam. A writer, an artist, a comedian, a scholar. But dig a little deeper. Say to a sci-fi performance in August of 2023, and you'll find Elise's true dark passion. The creation of a robot body inspired by the 2003 PlayStation 2 classic Need for Speed Underground, into which she would transfer her sentience. But how would you fund this abomination, Elise? 
through, for, uh, through fraudulent prophets from your resort, Poseidon Sands, the bastard child of Fire Festival and renowned monorail conman, Lyle Laneley. Perhaps we should ask the good people of Ogdenville, Brockway and North Haverbrook. For the rest of the evening, I would like you to refer to me as Sophie Ellis Bexer because there's been a murder on the dance floor. Oh, wow. Really used up a lot of time on that. Now, dear audience, to the argument at hand. Elias did an amazing job of outlining the nitty-gritty of the concepts surrounding this topic. You could say they were the natural selection to go first. Uh, Natural selection is just one of five agreed-upon mechanisms by which evolution occurs. The other four are mutation, genetic drift, gene flow, and non-random mating. But if you look at these, at these other mechanisms, they're still governed by natural selection. A mutation that makes an organism more suited to its environment and spreads through a population over time? Natural selection. The genetic equilibrium between genes being unbalanced through natural chance, the spreading of a trait from one isolated population to another, the selection of a mate due to non-random factors. All of these can and do occur at an individual level, but at a population level, they are all governed by natural selection. It's like that meme with the two astronauts where the first one says, wait, it's all Ohio, and the second one says, always has been. I assume that's how they speak. Uh, And if natural selection wasn't the Queen Bee, the Regina George of evolution, what would you have us do, affirmative team? How would you allow us to continue to evolve to face the threats we face as a species? Play in the microwave to mutate our genes? Contravene our hallowed credo of no hat, no play until we look like the cast of the Real Housewives of Melbourne? Would you have us segregate into isolated populations, forcing us into arranged marriages based on genetic genetic diversity, like the families we see in Coles and Woolies ads, so we forget the blatant price gouging? (laughs) Let me humour these dummies and their tomfoolery. Let's say natural selection was no longer at play. We've king hit sweet mother nature with a centrifuge and crowbarred the car keys out of her hands with pipettes. We are the captain now. What do we do? Modern Homo sapiens are believed to have emerged as a distinct species around 150,000 years ago. Gregor Mendel, the founder of modern genetics, first published his Laws of Inheritance in 1858. Do you know what that 166 years of just one of our entire species knowing about genetics, because it didn't even have a name at this point, it was so fucking new. Do you know what it is as a percentage of our time existing as a species? Anyone got some quick maths? Never fear, the human calculator Arjun Chahal is here. And using my human calculating fingers, I plugged the numbers into a regular calculator and got 0.001%. If our existence on the Earth was condensed into an hour of time, we would have known about genes for the last 30-second milliseconds. Known, not understood. I mean, fuck me, we only sequenced our genome in the year 2000, 24 years ago, and only to a 92% level of completeness. A 99.7 completeness genome was published in 2022, but with the levels of variation seen within the human population, it's still not the definitive answer. As my Indian parents would say, 99.7? What happened to the other 0.3%? I'm kidding, I never got 99.7. Now I'm here. Sequencing the human genome might tell us what genes are, uh, what genes are where, and what proteins they code for. But mapping the delicate interplay between their expression and interaction to accurately predict the characteristics the organism will have is far beyond our comprehension even without factoring in things like epigenetics and translational control. 
Much like the rocket scientist who asked astronaut Sally Ride, the first woman to go to space, if 100 tampons would be enough for her five-day voyage. We have absolutely no fucking clue. And even if we did have the tools, how would we decide? You know, we always ask, can we? But what we really should ask is, should we? How would we determine the correct mix of sugar, spice, snip snails and puppy dog tails to create a new life? Who would be the arbiter of what is right and wrong? Science is great at finding solutions to problems. You know who else likes solutions? Especially the final variety? (laughs) Nazis. Atlanta told me to stay away from genocide jokes, but she would say that. She has a sloping brow and cranial bumpage of the career criminal. Uh, That was an example of phrenology, aka the measurements of bumps on the head to predict mental traits. Another example of humans trying their best to use science as racism. The Human Genomes Project... Uh, The Human Genome Project's mission statement is to accelerate scientific and medical breakthroughs to improve human health, and they aim to do that by mapping the positions of genes to create a reference genome. People with known disease pathologies could then be sequenced and the genome map compared to the reference to identify what genes could be involved. Despite its altruistic beginnings, the search for answers generates huge questions. What is right? What is normal? Do genes code for all our characteristics and behaviours? Does it code for our sexuality? If our one purpose in life, according to biology, is to pass on our genes, surely deviations away from heterosexuality are deleterious mutations. What purpose does neurodivergence serve, or trisomy 21? As we mature as a species, we begin to disregard the oppressive cultural and social constructs of our past. We understand that with increased intermingling and contact with other cultures, there are infinite different ways to find beauty and fulfilment in differences we once thought of with pity or disgust. It's natural selection again, but this time unfettered by the xenophobic blinkers. Survival of the fittest remains, but we're at the stage now where the fittest might mean most emotionally intelligent or most accepting, rather than biggest Chad gym rat. (laughs) Not to say selective breeding hasn't been done and doesn't still occur. We've tried before with remarkably simple things like breeding pest-resistant potatoes and designer dogs like chihuahuas. But all we've managed to do is create huge threats to our physical and mental well-being and produce potatoes with lethal levels of glycoalkylide solanines. The 1997 classic Gattaca sums it up best when Ethan Hawke's character, Vincent, blows cigarette smoke into a wine glass, simulating the conditions on the gas-covered moon of Titan. That point being, smoking is fucking cool, and no matter how bad we want to live in a future where we can do it all the time with no repercussions thanks to genetic engineering, a world where 90s heartthrob Ethan Hawke is an ugly loser is not a world I want to live in. Plus, like, the whole discrimination based on our genetic makeup thing is also kind of a bummer. (laughs) Perhaps we, as a team, are too close to this idea to see it clearly. A team comprised of variations to the norm. Someone who does not fit into the outdated binary of gender. Someone who was a person of colour growing up in a predominantly white country. And someone who was a freakish ayahuasca fever sex dream of Mary Shelley and Hunter S. Thompson. (laughs) But I think we are too young as a scientific species to even comprehend how little we know. The laughable concept that natural selection is over should have been smothered in its sleep during its infancy, just like the members of the affirmative team. (laughs) We would be a better place for it. Thank you. Martin Chahal! Pulling his punches. Are you ready for the final arguments from the third speaker of the affirmative? Alrighty. 
<laughs> Elise Phillips is a comedian, illustrator, and writes for ABC's Hard Quiz. Last time Elise came to Sci-Fi, her team won, and now she has the taste of victory. She's bringing a fun, intense sports mum energy to the whole thing tonight. Uh, she submitted this bio also at 2am because she thrives under pressure. Make some noise for Elise Phillips! Hello. Science enthusiasts, debate fans, people who were here expecting some sort of science-based fight and are sorely disappointed. I know you've all been sitting here tonight wondering when, just when will someone metaphorically tear the negative team a new asshole by rebutting every single one of their arguments? Well, you can wonder no longer because I'm here and I'm ready to get my hands dirty. Not from the asshole tearing, it's a new metaphor, <laughs> separate to that. The negative team started with Elias, who kicked things off with a damning confession that their brain is as riddled with holes as a reverse zombie, thanks to Melbourne's lockdowns. Uh, they then went on to say a lot of numbers, um, which honestly caused me to black out for a little bit there. Uh, but their central point seemed to be that Unless one of the three pillars of natural selection has broken down, we can't truly say that it's over. And you know what? I actually, I actually agree with that um, because pillar two, the one that says uh, people with favourable genetic traits are the ones to survive, um, I'm pretty sure that's been cooked for some time now and I'm going to use myself as an example here. Um, I stand before you tonight as a woman who's not only surviving but thriving and I am. Thank you. Thank you, thanks. <laughs> uh, and that's entirely down to the unnatural. Um, <laughs> exhibit A, um, the last time I was here on stage at Howler, um, I was competing in a raw comedy heat, and as part of my act, I put eight hot dogs in my mouth at once. Um, not only did I not die, um, I went on to fit nine in my mouth the next time I did the act. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Um, exhibit B, uh, I am someone who has sleep apnea. Uh, my brain sometimes just forgets that I need to breathe when I'm asleep. And by sometimes, I mean upwards of 82 times an hour, it forgets to do that. Um, my throat muscles are so loose and lazy that my windpipe just closes on up. Yeah, loose pipes. <laughs> Come talk to me about it later. Um, but thanks to using a CPAP machine that blasts hot air up my nose non-stop for eight hours a night when I strap it onto my face, um, I don't die in my sleep like nature intended. <laughs> um, and Exhibit C, I am a neurodivergent woman. Uh, I've got the, the hot combo of ADHD and a little side of autism. We love to see it. Um, and it means that I struggle with some pretty basic tasks to keep me alive. Uh, it's, pr it's pretty fun and chill. Um, for instance, uh, there's been a bit of a shortage of um, ADHD medication at the moment, which means over the last couple of months I've forgotten to pay bills for electricity that I need to live. I've uh, put, forgotten to put aside money for groceries that I also need to live, but I have remembered to put down a deposit for a tattoo that I want to get next month of... Um, it's going to be Miss Piggy as Venus in, uh, coming out of the clamshell. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. Point is, this shouldn't exist. <laughs> this shouldn't exist. And yet I do. I'm still here and I will continue to be here laughing in the face of natural selection. Honestly, I might even have a child just to prove a point. 
Just out of spite, let the legacy continue. Natural selection is done. Um, up second, we had Arjun. Um, Arjun almost won me over with his Animorphs references and his entirely correct opinions about improv comedy. It's trash. It's so bad. It's so bad. Don't go. Um, but he did lose me with his slanderous attempt to fill time and avoid making a cogent argument. I mean... He really just went down the line and picked at the most basic low-hanging fruit he could of each and every one of us. Although, thank you for bringing up um, my win at the last sci-fi. That was, that was very lovely for, of you. Um, mostly because, like, I still do very much want um, big robot legs that I can stomp around town in. And I put out another call to any scientists in the room um, to help me make that happen, please, if you can. Um, I do think it will help me to continue to survive unnaturally. So it's kind of um, helped make my point for me even more. Thank you. Um, Arjun also said a lot of numbers and I blacked out again. <clears throat> and um, thirdly, we have the elephant in the room, um, the unspoken fourth member of the negative team, Charles Darwin himself. Um, he's not here right now, of course. He's long since passed, um, which means I have full licence to rebut him in the form of cruel personal attacks without any repercussions. Uh, the term natural selection and Charles Darwin, they go hand in hand, but is he a man that we can trust? Um, for starters, Charles Darwin was a shit student. Yeah, I said it. Uh, his dad sent him off to a fancy uni to study medicine and he spent so much time bunking off to ride horses and shoot guns that he dropped out and signed up for an arts degree. Yeah, he has a BA. Um, that's the degree that I have. <laughs> like, no shade on that degree. I, I am proud to have one. Um, but I did mine in three years. It took Charles Darwin six. Um, <laughs> Like, I, do, would you trust me to come up with a grand theory to explain the development of our natural world? Because you shouldn't, and you doubly, doubly shouldn't trust Charles Darwin. Um, after old Charlie managed to graduate, he became a self-funded gentleman scientist, um, which is a nice way of saying my dad makes a ton of money through investments and he pays me to fuck off into the ocean. Um, I'd argue that Charles Darwin could, in fact, be the original fail son. I think he's the first one. Um, my guy, he developed his theories after sailing on the Beagle, uh, jotting down his little thoughts about zoology, which, side note, I'm pretty sure they don't offer as part of an arts degree. Um, and he was, he was seasick the entire time he was on that boat. Um, I Personally, this is a rule that I have. I don't know whether you keep it also. Um, I don't trust anything written by anyone uh, while they're throwing up actively. Uh, you're not in your right mind. Do you remember the last time you were throwing up? Nothing going on up there. <laughs> None. Um, the final point I would like to make about Charles Darwin, and it's perhaps my most important one, um, is that he's a huge dweeb. Um, someone was going through books where he used to make his daily notes about animal breeding, and they found a pros and cons page he'd written up um, about pros and cons of whether he should get married or not. Um, and under the pros, he listed having a constant companion and a friend in old age, which would be better than a dog, I guess. Um, and in the cons column, he had um, less money for books and a terrible loss of time. Like, let, let me ask you, if, if natural selection is so legit, why did no one naturally select to give Charles Darwin a huge wedgie every day of his life? If Charles Darwin was right and our evolution comes down to natural selection, why would this genius with traits that we surely must continue to pass on, that we must want to continue, why would he be such a massive virgin? Make it make sense. 
No, it can only be the case that natural selection is over, and our team has well and truly proven it to you tonight. Um, let me give you a reminder of some of the rock-solid arguments that we've presented. Uh, our first speaker, Julian, showed you that selective breeding, it hasn't been natural for a long, long time. We all remember the big titty pigeon, all right? <laughs> and I will continue to remember it for the rest of my days, fondly. Not only have we been getting unnatural with our selective breeding, but humans have been actively striving against nature for centuries through schooling, healthcare, harbouring our fugitive children, and trussing up our collective testicles like so much Christmas ham. <laughs> and new biotech and our rapidly improving knowledge of genomics is giving us more and more control over the future of humanity and what it looks like, and good or ill, the demand is there for it. Our second speaker, Sashi, went deep into the unnatural world of making poodles root every other kind of dog there is under the sun until we have oodles of oodles. She also showed you that we live in a very different time to Bachelor of Arts haver Charles Darwin um, and that we're constantly striving to prolong human life well past its natural end. And of course, Sashi presented you with one of the most compelling points of all this evening, that if natural selection is still at work, theoretically making each generation of humanity better than the one before it. Why is maths still such a rating smash? <laughs> My fine people, it's, it's abundantly clear that unnatural selection has been in full effect for some time now. Natural selection, it's well and truly over. Unnatural selection has been with us, it continues to be with us, and it's here to stay. So let's embrace it. Let's just see how unnatural we can get. Really fast-track this thing. Um, any scientists in the room, come on, let's, let's just fucking go for it, right? Uh, let me unnaturally select my beach body for next summer and make it like a tentacled Elric horror. Let me, let me get my hands on a big dial that just has a big sign on it that says abject, and let me just have a fucking whale on that thing, turn it up to 11. We've been messing with nature. We've been messing with our destiny for centuries now. I mean, natural selection. I'm sorry, but natural selection, she can't come to the phone right now. Why? Because she's dead. <laughs> Lise Phillips. Tonight is very dark and uh, I, I should have expected that however I didn't and that's on me uh, we're going to move on to our final debater for tonight are you ready <laughs> correct Martin Dunlop is a comedy writer in the way that an angry letter writer to the Herald Sun is a published author He's been doing comedy in one form or another since 2009, including festival shows, stand-up, a really rough Channel 31 show, <laughs> except, the last, yeah, except for the last three years where he's been hitting in his basement trying to wait out the end of the world, emerging once the liquor ran out and the attempt at fermenting the furniture sent him blind for a week. It's important that you clap for Martin Dunlop. <laughs> Who are we to straighten what God has made crooked? Wrote the wise King Solomon, talking about my penis. Three weeks ago, I awoke shackled in the hold of a cargo ship after drinking with sailors. Once again, headed back to my deadliest enemy and most passionate lover, the city of Shanghai itself. <laughs> a lantern burst through the portal, tarred head to toe for waterproofing, and a large knife between her teeth. I need you to do sci-fight on the 15th of February. I said to her, listen to me, you drunken bigamist. 
You get me out of this mess and I'll do anything you ask. Anything, she said, eyeing my one good kidney. I'm not drinking with any more sailors, Atlanta, I told her. She spat twice and cursed and then towed the boat back to Melbourne, the rope between her teeth the whole way. We parted amicably, and though I longed to dive into the ocean and return to that Chinese port city of my dreams, instead I wrote this. (laughs) Natural selection. What does natural selection mean? What does selection mean? What does natural mean? What does is mean? What does mean mean? Where was I the night of the murder? I told you, on the other side of town, committing a different, sexier murder. But we're not here to relitigate my litigation. We're here to correctly determine that natural selection isn't over. And the affirmative team have hardly put up much of a fight. But can you blame them? You had Julian here at first speaker, a professed poet who writes poetry with AI, something I can understand because I dropped a bag of Scrabble tiles on the ground last week and I suppose that makes me Jane fucking Austen. Uh, We had Elise over here at third speaker. I've seen Elise's comedy work described differently in reviews. It's it's sort of performance-based. There's lots of movement, prop work, elements of sketch. And there's a reason so many different words are used. It's because if you say the word clown too many times, you might accidentally summon one. Elise's performances are the sort of thing that when my daughter does them in a supermarket, I have to explain to her the difference between good attention and bad attention. Yes, I know everybody's laughing, but please stop opening pickle jars. And finally, we have the second speaker, Sashi Pereira, who left the world of refugee lawyering to come where she was really needed. That's right, more fucking comedians. We love to laugh. And their arguments were no better. <laughs> Julian asked me what I, what I want for my children. The audacity. What do my children want for me? And how much blood are they willing to spill to get it for me? <laughs> he talked about how I could carve myself a better child in the, root, in the womb with cold, loveless science, ignoring that I can carve myself better children outside of the womb with warm, loving shame. Sashi argued, I'm going to stop clicking that. Sashi argued that natural selection doesn't exist because we outlive bonobos. Now, certainly we die later than bonobos, but can you really say we live more than bonobos? I've seen videos, filthy videos. And she argued that natural selection doesn't exist because we've ended up watching TV all day on our phone and on computers. Yes, ended up where we belong, curled around that warm digital glow. (laughs) And finally, Elise argued that natural selection does not exist because she uses a CPAP machine to live. From whence did the technicians who built your CPAP machine spring? The digital ether or from our cruel natural world?
In comparison to our wonderful um, members of our team, our, our first speaker, Elias, argued uh, that natural selection was definitively found still functioning in the mountains of Papua New Guinea, where a tribe had evolved to still continue cannibalism, while the rest of us are denied an entire school of culinary excellence. <laughs> And also argued that exposure to everyday items like the sun and disease set our evolutionary process working, wait for it, naturally. <laughs> a second speaker, Arjun Singh, argued that mapping the genome has had no impact on natural selection. We're still short, ugly, and self-deprecating. <laughs> Further arguing that even if it had had an impact, it would make li very little difference to our non-genetic traits. Now, my argument goes a little differently. I would argue that we're not free of natural selection, we're just lucky, so far. <laughs> and certainly nobody in this room has been attacked by a lion recently, but does that mean that there are no more lion attacks or that lion attacks are overdue and imminent? <laughs> I will not be the first one out the door tonight. And I would like to argue that if we see that natural selection is in fact in any way slowing or waning, as the affirmative has argued, then it is beholden upon us to facilitate more natural selection. And that's why I'm suggesting that we get a person with a penis and a person with a vagina and drop them down a well surrounded by wild dogs with no choice but to breathe their way out. <laughs> Please don't cut my microphone. Killing off each child that seems unsuited to defeat the dogs and feeding them to other, more capable children until we have the perfect improved child able to escape the jaws of the hungry beasts and lead their parents to safely. safety. Now, you could argue that this will simply result in breeding a pack of giant, ravenous dogs with a taste for children, but there's a use for that too. Guarding my petunias. And remember, the end goal of this survival of the fittest doesn't necessarily depend on literally being the fittest. Evolution is a game I intend to win, and the ideal win condition is not to be the strongest or most powerful, but to have children with people, and the children are then raised by somebody else, like the humble cuckoo. And with this in mind, I recently posted an ad on Facebook Marketplace titled, Raise My Bastards. No money offered, but I did have a HelloFresh voucher that came with my cat food and a carton of So Good just shy of expiration. And happily, I can announce that the number of responses to the ad has not been zero, thanks to the ongoing collapse of society. And while I cannot promise that none of my illegitimate progeny will be carried off by wildlife or riddled with disease, we certainly can't rule out at least one making it to adulthood and tracking me down, despite my best efforts. And I promise to confer upon them my full rights and title if my lawyers can't put a stop to it first. <laughs> certainly, I'll be an absent father, but have you considered that I'm also a neglectful son, a poor employee, and still wanted in Queensland in connection with those missing backpackers? <laughs> And having conferred my full rights and title, at long last, a Dunlop will be the victor of God's poisoned animal kingdom, like I assume he always intended. Good night. Mom Dunlop!
presented with a lot of what we will for the <laughs> purposes of expediently called arguments tonight. <laughs> and I will present you with what I will call for expediency a summary uh, shortly. But uh, before I do that, I'm just going to quickly ask each of the debaters if they have anything they want to spruik uh, to, <laughs> to the good people who are still in the room um, <laughs> in case you would like to, to see our debaters again in, in another place in another time. Uh, Elise, did you want to share? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm doing... A, a New new comedy show uh, at Adelaide Fringe and then at Melbourne Comedy Festival, first week of the festival. Um, it's called Falling Asleep in Front of the TV at 3am, The 4D Experience. <laughs> I think, yeah, that, that sums it up. Um, and also on YouTube, um, me and uh, my co-writer Vijay Rajan, we made a little web series for ABC Fresh Blood called Ruby Rye PI. It's free. You can just go check that out and that would be so sick if you did. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, Elise is actually very good, despite what the other team say. Just to, yeah, <laughs> reclowns. Uh, my show for the comedy festival is called Boundaries, and it's on from the 9th to the 21st of April. So you can head to sashi.com.au for tickets if you like. Please come; that'd be awesome to not be alone. <laughs> Um, I, I don't have a show, but my colleague Molly Johnson, who's in the audience here, runs the Monash Bioethics Centre Twitter in a brilliant and slightly unhinged way, and I think you should follow it. What's, what's the handle? I, I assume the handle's Monash Bioethics Centre, is that? Uh, <laughs> Good luck. Too busy with ethical bios. Uh, we're going to throw it to the other team. Anyone got anything you want to promote? You all look at it. Okay. Martin Dunlop is promoting sleep. Uh, all good? I have nothing after this. Please stop perceiving me. <laughs> Leave the negative alone. Oh, wait, what about me? Yeah, go on. I'm thinking about becoming a wedding celebrant, so if you like what you saw tonight, <laughs> it's I'll probably do it the night before like this, so you know it'll be good. <laughs> The vows may be full of self-loathing and existentialism. Okay, all right. Uh, I have a show. It's called Trick or Treatment. Uh, it's a science comedy show. <laughs> I'm so scared to tell anyone, but I should because uh, I will be in lots of debt if I don't. Uh, it's called Trick or Treatment. Uh, it's about the science behind various alternative medicines, uh, and I'm now legally capable of telling you all about it. So, uh, yeah, it's at the comedy festival. Do come along. Um, <laughs> thank you. All right, let's summarise what's happened this evening. Uh, Julian, the poster boy for eugenics, kicked off the debate <laughs> with a show-and-tell of the genetically modified horrors of the animal kingdom. Uh, he horrified everyone with tales of testicular knots, which I don't remember learning in brownies. <laughs> Pointing out that the problem with eugenics was that it just wasn't scientific enough and it was too government mandated, what we need to do is hand it to the free market. <laughs> the famously ethical force of the free market. Fulfilling the role of the neo-Nazi that this debate really needed. <laughs> Elias pointed out that good genetics means diverse genetics. I thought they were putting forward a very good argument about why we shouldn't eat the dead but then pointed out how it helped natural selection, so the jury is still out on cannibalism. 
Stuff is going to change, so we're going to change. Seemed possibly more pro-infertility than the pro-eugenics team. <laughs> Accused me of being a eugenicist, which is data I'll be feeding into my project to make the perfect debating team. Uh, so she pointed out nature is better than uh, what we're creating popularly. Uh, also put forward the popular argument that we should all die young. Attacked the physical traits of everyone on stage and the intellectual traits of her own team, which I haven't technically ruled out, so it's a pass. Uh, Arjun said he wasn't going to do rebuttals, then rebutted extensively. <laughs> Launching into some of the most complex and well-researched backhanded compliments I, as a uh, moderator, have ever witnessed. And I'm still trying to work my way through. Uh, I did a, 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 a topic-appropriate science pun informing you all that you'd not given him enough praise, which you then did. And none of us feel good about that. And he took away the wrong messages from Gadiger. was very sexy <laughs> in a cancerous kind of way. Uh, Elise, <laughs> Elise Phillips' hair has done more heavy lifting for the affirmative's case than anything else from the arguments this evening. Uh, is here tonight funded by CPAP, PTY, LTD. Took on Darwin not a minute too soon. And, well, you all saw what Martin did and there's no way to adequately describe that. <laughs> or how that fits in a traditional debate structure. <laughs> it is now your turn <laughs> to decide how this debate landed this evening. If you thought the affirmative convinced you effectively that natural selection is over, make some noise! And if you thought whatever this was from the negative made you convinced that natural selection is not over, make some noise. <laughs> that is my fault. I did ask you to make noise. All right, I award tonight's debate to the negative team. <laughs> Round of applause for all of our debaters. Can I have a huge thank you to Howler for having us this evening. Uh, and thank you for so much for coming along. If you'd like to come to future SciFights, head to scifight.com.au. Uh, sign up to the newsletter. I will not sell your data to third parties that often. Uh, thank you so much for coming. You've been brilliant. Have a lovely evening. Good night.